Hello and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Dr. Lara Devgan is a renowned board-certified plastic and reconstructive surgeon and CEO of Dr. Devgan Scientific Beauty, a luxury medical-grade skincare line. She's a medical expert for ABC News, an editorial consultant for The Lancet, and a nationally and internationally invited lecturer on surgical topics. Dr. Devgan's achievements have been recognized by RateMDs, The New York Times Magazine, Vitals.com, and many other organizations. She practices in New York City and lives on Manhattan's Upper East Side with her husband and six children. It is certainly a treat for us to have you on, Dr. Devgan, this morning. We're super excited to learn more about your path to plastic surgery and your work in building a world-renowned luxury skincare brand. Take us to the beginning. We'd love to hear about your decision to pursue plastic surgery as a profession. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, Plastic surgery is an amazing field. It's truly the perfect marriage of art and anatomy. And I grew up as a classically trained artist. I was drawn to medicine in medical school. I thought initially I wanted to be a surgical oncologist or a cancer surgeon. And that field has many of the things that I like about plastic surgery. It's multidisciplinary. It's very academic. You can treat all kinds of patients from head to So it's all about the anatomy, but I found myself at the end of surgical oncology case when I was a third and fourth year medical student lingering around to see how the plastic surgery team would come in and reconstruct the cancer related defects and really became passionate about what I considered the end chapter of the story, which is how do you get people back to feeling like their whole selves? And I really like that idea of quality of life. It's not just quantity of life. And then more specifically, the more I delved into plastic surgery, the more I felt like it really spoke to my desire and interest to combine the creativity of an artistic background with some of the intricacies and science-based ideologies of medicine. So every case is different. Every patient has unique anatomic characteristics and specific desires and goals. It's really an opportunity to use your mind in a creative and varied way every single day. So I really love it. I also think plastic surgery is such a unique field because many people don't realize it encompasses so much. It's a discipline that encompasses complex craniofacial reconstructions, cleft lip and palate, congenital anomalies, burn reconstruction, cancer reconstruction, breast cancer, free tissue transfer, microsurgery, hand surgery, extremity salvage, you know, being a surgeon, surgeon, really understanding how to make parts of the skin, soft tissue, bone, and soft tissue envelope of the body into anything you want them to be. So I think that technology and progress also in minimally invasive areas like injectables and devices is so interesting to me as well. And that's something where plastic surgery is always changing. What would you advise someone who's a physician who, of course, wants to engage in clinical care, but has this inkling to impact a greater population? 
I think when I was in medical school at Johns Hopkins, I combined my MD degree with a master's degree in public health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. And that was in conjunction with a National Institute of Health T32 Predoctoral Clinical Research Fellowship. It's a mouthful, but it was good. And I focused at that time on epidemiology and biostatistics, because I think to be able to impact larger groups, we have to really understand what's going on with them. And public health and biostatistics is really a way for us to understand with with regard to my interest in particular, how surgical outcomes research can be used to shape the future. One project that I worked on during that year was with uh, Marty McCary and his group group at Hopkins focusing on the concept of frailty as it predicts and relates to surgical outcomes. And that frailty research has become a very good metric and mimetic for predicting how someone's going to do in the operating room. So one way of taking N equals one to N equals one million is to look at societal trends, be very clean about data collection and analysis, and try to figure out what you can do with it. You know, many people don't realize that some of the biggest health breakthroughs of our time were simple public health interventions, like the concept of hand washing, the concept of an electrolyte refeeding balance that's helped save millions of lives, Um, the widespread use of antibiotics. Many of the algorithms that we use in treating things like a heart attack when you show up at the emergency room, these are all things that started with one person understanding patterns and then increasing them and scaling them. So I, I do think it's still all about the science. And the same is true for stuff in skincare, you know, the concept of a retinoid, a vitamin C, hyaluronic, SPF. These are all things that are evidence-based. And in order to scale something in medicine, you have to understand that science is not a fixed moment in time. It's something that's ever-changing. And the ability to neutrally and empirically interpret data will allow you to pivot. And all we ask of ourselves is to try to make the best decisions we can at a given moment in time. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be correct forever. I think you're in a unique position as the brand you've built is direct to consumer, but you have this thesis of being scientifically based as a board certified plastic surgeon and this idea of scientific beauty. How do you go about communicating information in an engaging, compelling, and also accurate manner to, to folks who might not fully comprehend the science. I think that's a big challenge with any field. You know, as you know, what we do is extremely technical and there's a ton of jargon, but I like to use my voice in a variety of different ways. So um, so I think social media and social sharing has become a very powerful tool. Um, I do think that consumers of all stripes and even lay people who have no education or experience that's specifically related to science and medicine um, are actually really interested in this stuff. Um, who doesn't want to know a little bit more about how to optimize their health and beauty. And in terms of specific vehicles for making what we do more accessible, I use a lot of analogies. I try to teach. Um, I try to introduce concepts like anatomy, ingredients, science, you know, explanations. Um, And I think that there are many, many options available to us. When I was first coming of age as a plastic surgeon, I finished my um, fellowships in 2013. It was a different landscape. Social media was not really a thing that people did. I started my practice Instagram page, I think 
it might've been 2016, 2015 or 2016. I don't totally remember, but at that time, that was not a thing that plastic surgeons were doing by and large. And I think we need to be available and adaptable because there's nothing inherently good or bad about any of the communication media we have out there. But I do think the internet allows us an opportunity to scale in a way that we've never seen before. And that has the potential for a lot of information and a lot of misinformation. And one thing that I was finding, even though I don't think of myself as a social media person, I do think that if you have a background in a space and you don't say anything. You're basically allowing the space to be taken over by those with less knowledge, less experience, and fewer credentials. There's this expression I like, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And if we don't, as board-certified plastic surgeons, pull up a seat to that table and use our voices in a safe, medically responsible, and clinically-based way, then other people who maybe shouldn't be at the table will take that space. So I think be willing and able to participate in conversations that society is having. I'd like to shift the conversation a little bit towards the brand of Dr. Devgan's Uh, scientific beauty and understand how you define it and how you went about building it. So my skincare line really started as a natural outgrowth of my practice. And I truly didn't set out trying to make it into a brand. Um, I wanted to deliver excellent topical outcomes and experiences for the patients in my practice. So if I was taking care of someone after a facelift or blepharoplasty, how was I going to help them integrate topicals into their routine? You know, I think many people underestimate the importance of topical skincare products, especially as plastic surgeons are bias is that the operating room is the place to be and everything else is secondary. But truly a beautiful and modern approach to facial aging includes not only surgery, but also non-surgical interventions and even at-home interventions like topicals. So originally the product line was really just built for my patients and really struck a chord. We were seeing amazing results in terms of clinical improvements in skin quality. Patient satisfaction was very high. And one friend told another friend, and it really kind of became an organic spread. I think we had a few um, really lucky moments where we had higher profile people put the products into the world. And I look back at some of those times as real moments of inflection. None of it was a paid ad. It was just real, truly organic stuff happening. And those little moments really helped put it on a national stage. When Kim Kardashian tweeted her facial with my skincare products, um, or when Jennifer Aniston wore my lip plumper on the cover of InStyle magazine, those were the types of publicity that not only can you not buy, but like, I frankly couldn't afford to buy. And those were really important moments in moving the needle for the skincare line. We remain uh, primarily a direct to consumer brand. And that's how I really think about it. But at the same time in this past year, we've had a larger launch into more retail spaces. So Sephora, Net-A-Porter, Violet Gray, a number of little boutiques that are focusing on um, skincare and kind of of this niche space of more medicalized skincare. Very helpful and amazing to hear about the traction that you garnered over the years. As far as 
thinking about the brand, the language you were using or the mission statements or the logo, how did you structure and approach that as you were building this brand in a more formalized way beyond the product's integrity and efficacy? I wanted stuff that was great and that worked. And I truly thought about myself as not that different from my patients and my target demographic, which which is, to put it another way, I consider myself a person of substance who also cares about how I present myself to the world. I'm busy. I don't have time for a million steps in my skincare routine. I think skin looks better than makeup. And sort of all of these notions that I had about what I thought would be great in a skincare brand. I really wanted to create the brand that I personally would use as a board certified plastic surgeon, knowing everything I know, but also as a busy mom on the go, who's juggling a thousand different things. What did I want? And I knew that I wanted to create something that was science-based with clinical trials and evidence to back up the use of the ingredients. I wanted stuff that felt a little bit more luxurious. I wanted it to feel good because I consider things more of an investment and I wanted it to really move the needle. So that was kind of what I was thinking about in terms of the philosophy and idea of the brand. And that's kind of how I consider the brand to be right now. And that's sort of the space it occupies. It's um, luxury medical grade skincare. So the stuff that you use works, it feels good, and it's very edited. And speaking more about that, we'd love to hear about how you structured approaching chemists and scientists to build out these products. How did you first get started as, you know, the innovator behind this brand? I think fortunately for us, science is built over generations and we know a lot because of our forefathers. The basics of understanding efficacy of ingredients, you know, the concept that a mineral-based sunscreen will be helpful in reducing UVA and UVB rays, for example, that's something that I did not author and nobody who's alive today did. But borrowing from the scientific literature and using the best ingredients, curating them and editing them in a way that's usable for other people. I think that's kind of the basis of this line. In terms of the actual formulations of the product, so I've worked with chemists and laboratories that have FDA clearance um, and operate in the United States to develop these products and bring them to market. And there are many little things to think about when it comes to product development. It's not just the formulation of the product and the exact ingredients, although I would argue that that's the most important factor. It's also the packaging. If you have a substance like a vitamin C, B, E, ferulic serum that can oxidize when exposed to light, you can't put it in just any dropper bottle. It has to be in an opaque dropper bottle. So we made the decision to go with an amber dropper bottle. It's a little bit more medicalized and it will keep the product safer. There are also decisions about the swiper, the seal, the top of the dropper, labeling versus screening a carton, there are a million little moving parts. And then there are a bunch of stylistic decisions about what do you want it to look like? What's the font? How's it going to read? Even in just the past few years, we've changed so much. And I really like this idea. One of my friends who is also in the beauty space has this idea that the goal of any kind of business model is to get it out there 
iterate, improve, learn, and then get version 2.0 out there. So our initial product line, I had black packaging with silver lettering and serif fonts, and it was a little bit more complicated. I personally liked it, but it didn't resonate well with our buyers who wanted something that was a little bit cleaner and brighter. So we've switched to white packaging. We um, started out with a retinol formulation that was a little bit weaker and the people who were using my line wanted something a little bit stronger. So we increased the strength of um, the retinoids. We added Bacuchiol. We made little adjustments to the retinoids that we were offering. So there are many little things to think about with something like this. And I think that each one of those decisions can be a major turning point. So there are many little things to do. I think the most important thing if you're thinking about entering this space is to just start and then and one million decisions will flow from that. How did you ensure the uniqueness of your brand and how did you generally approach collaborations and management of competitors? I really just focus on doing what I think is the best thing for me. And I have a little bit of a blinders on situation and I don't spend a lot of time thinking about what my competitors are doing. I think I live and breathe and work in the space and there are lots of people like me, but I don't think there's somebody who can understand the space in a way that makes me feel intimidated. Like this is all I do. I feel like truly I get what's going on. I talk to my patients every day. I'm fully vertically integrated. And one way that I designed my practice was I didn't want to be a plastic surgeon who was only in the operating room or only in the procedure room. I wanted to split my time so that I'm operating half of the time and doing non-surgical treatments half of the time. And even though I'm at a stage in my career where I could be 100% of either one of those, I truly think the balance of being fully vertically integrated has helped me. You know, I like when I meet a patient feeling like I don't have any bias. I'm not trying to push anyone to surgery or push anyone to anything really. I'm just trying to meet people where they are. So if someone has a concern, I can offer them anything from no intervention whatsoever to a topical um, microinfusion, microneedling, a laser, erbium laser, intense pulse light, um, an injectable such as Botox or filler, a combination of all of those things, suture suspension, thread lifting, or a surgical procedure. And in that way, I can really truly understand the spectrum of what is out there. So I focus on what I think is going to be the next big thing in this field. Great to hear and totally agree with you. You're just perfectly positioned. And I think all the more reason for physicians to really think about how they can leverage their expertise and contribute in a scalable way. One more quick question about branding. What do you think are the biggest mistakes or pitfalls that uh, you'd like to share in going about building your brand? What are those big mistakes that you'd like people to avoid? Well, I would say one thing to make sure you do is copy edit all of the packaging yourself. One one of my early mistakes that I made, which literally I couldn't talk about this for the longest time because it was too painful for me, but we did a huge run of tens of thousands of lip plumpers and there was a typo right on the front of the box. And that's our most popular product in SKU. It was like, it sold out 
13 or 14 consecutive times. It's like always on wait list at Sephora. It's this awesome product that was really the, the showcase of our brand for a time. And because our products are internationally distributed, we had bilingual translations, English, French translations on the product packaging. And so we, um, we wrote brillant olive, which means lip gloss, but it said brilliant olive. So there was like this extra eye, pretty subtle. If you guys have platinum lip plump, look at yours and see if you have one with a typo. It's like kind of a a thing now. Um, we've since corrected it, but I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, this error has been magnified, you know, times tens of thousands. What am I going to do? So sometimes the best advice that I can give people is some of the, the simplest advice. Why was that not caught? Why didn't we check it? Why didn't we double, triple, quadruple check it? The thing with scaling a brand is that if you're writing an essay and you have one typo, that's one typo. If you're sending something to a factory run, that error can get magnified very quickly from one to 1,000, 10,000, 20,000, beyond 50,000. So I would say sometimes the simple stuff is uh, just making sure that you are double checking everything that you're doing. And then beyond that, I think one of the biggest, more philosophical errors to think about is not doing something for the right reasons. It can be very difficult for people if they end up in a space that doesn't really speak to them. So I would think with your heart rather than with your Excel spreadsheet. But I really think that if you feel passionate about something, it's not going to feel like work to try to answer the questions of that space. If I were in a field that I didn't feel passionate about, I think some of the little hiccups and little conceptual questions would feel much more stressful to me. So just be careful and tread lightly. I think the concept of entrepreneurship and being a this slash that has almost become a trope and maybe an overused one. I don't really like the idea of thinking about entrepreneurship and working backward from a business model. I like the idea of working forward from your passions because we're each on this earth for such a limited amount of time. Life is truly too short to do something that you don't like. And there are many ways to be successful and there are many ways to add value to other people and yourself um, that can be true to you. We'd love to hear about your future outlook for the brand moving forward. Where do you see scientific beauty uh, going in, in the next five to 10 years? So we have a bunch of new verticals that we're launching that I'm really excited about. I think by far and away, um, the skincare space is the part that um, that I think we have most traction in and that I feel most personally passionate about. But we're launching nutraceuticals as a vertical next month, actually. So I think that that's going to be really exciting. A lot of health and beauty comes from the inside out and for things like hair loss, uh, eyelashes, skin health, nails, simple things like having sufficient biotin, folate, niacin, B12 complex vitamins in your system can really nourish growth from the inside out. And so our nutraceuticals are going to really hit 
that idea. And I think with an, a renewed focus, now that we're all coming out of this um, difficult year with COVID-related quarantines, people have become a lot more interested in taking care of themselves. We all realize that we've taken so much for granted and that life doesn't make you any promises. And so taking care of yourself and the idea of, of really taking that extra minute to nourish yourself and do something good for yourself, I think is appealing. I'm also building out the vertical of more medicalized makeup. So our um, platinum long lash, which is our eyelash and eyebrow serum, and platinum lip plumper, our medical grade lip plumper, have become very, very powerful and very popular products. And we're going to lean into that with an extreme eyelash lengthening mascara. And then we're going to look at the use of possibly expanding into color cosmetics in order to bring makeup and skincare together. I think historically people have thought about makeup is kind of like the fun part and skincare is like the taking your medicine, the part that you don't really like. But I really like the idea in a busy world, editing that down so that what if the makeup you used is infused with hyaluronic acid and vitamin C? And what if the, the eyelash um, mascara you use has an eyelash enhancement serum in it? And so I think exploring that can be really interesting. And then in terms of big picture for the brand, I'd like to continue to try to add value to people's lives. I'd like to continue to work on ways for the brand to grow, not because of ads or product placement, but because people like it. And I truly think that that's how you can build a brand that means something if, if it's real. You've spoken a lot about adding value to the general population and bringing quality products to market. We'd love to know about your role as Chief Medical Officer of RealSelf and how that was connecting patients to other clinicians in the community to provide them with information about cosmetic treatments. Yes, I'm no longer at Real Self, but I was chief medical officer at Real Self for a little while, and um, it was a really interesting experience. I really enjoyed understanding the world of big tech and meeting a lot of amazing people. I think Real Self is trying to do what a lot of us are trying to do, which is bring transparency and information to the public at large. Probably one of the biggest challenges about plastic surgery and particularly cosmetic plastic surgery is the information opacity of it. What we do is complex and difficult to understand. And on top of that, there's this tremendous social stigma about talking about it. So if someone might have an idea that one of their friends or associates maybe did a little something, but it would be considered gauche or intrusive to ask them. And then people dive into rabbit holes on the internet and they don't necessarily find correct information. So the goal of responsible people in the space of medical aesthetics is to try to bring transparency, to try to explain simple facts. What is this treatment? What does the procedure look like? How do you look before, during, and after it? What's it going to do for you? Are other people happy with this procedure or unhappy? Is there downtime? What's the expense? How long will it last? Do I need to do it again? Um, can I see some examples of what this can look like? And the concept of creating information like that is 
truly invaluable. So it was a true honor for me to be appointed chief medical officer to Real Self, especially at a young age and early stage in my career. It really um, was a cool experience. And I think right now, the advent of social media and social sharing has made it so that individual physicians and surgeons can have a role that's similar to that where, you know, anybody from the freedom of your cell phone can share information and educate. And, um, and that's really what it's about. Switching gears a little bit, it's very apparent from our conversation today that you wear a lot of hats, both practicing clinically, launching your own brand, and you do have a pretty robust personal life as well with a large family. And I'm sure our listeners would really like to know what a day in the life looks for you and how do you balance it all? Yes. Every day is a little bit different, but I love the constancy of a routine. So I wake up early in the morning. A lot of times lately, my kids are waking me up. Um, So I wake up early in the morning, try to spend a little bit of time getting organized. I try to do an eight minute workout app on my phone just to get the blood flowing and maintain my health and existence on this planet. I check my email and phone, look at the agenda for the day get dressed, get my kids dressed, have breakfast. My husband still makes me a cup of coffee after all these years, which is like a cute little gesture that I really appreciate. And then I drop off usually half of my kids. My husband and I have a little system for switching off and then I go to work and every day at work is different. And I think that's one thing that I really love about it. But the different hats that I wear while I'm at work include being in the operating room and I perform surgical procedures of the face, breasts, and body. The vast majority of what I do is procedures that focus on little tiny meticulous details. And that's kind of what I have truly leaned into in my professional career. So I sometimes say that beauty is in the details. And so I love little finesse procedures like face and neck lift, blepharoplasty, lip lift, buckle fat pad excision, brow lift, kind of the areas where people really want those tiny little details to show up. Another hat I wear is non-surgical procedures. So on some days I'm in the office seeing patients in procedure rooms and I'm doing things like non-surgical facial contouring, suture suspension lifting. I think that non-surgical rhinoplasty is one of the procedures that I have become most busy doing. And I think that those little ways that we're taking some of the techniques of the non-surgical world and marrying them with surgical anatomy have really moved the envelope in terms of what's possible. You know, another hat I wear is as the founder of my skincare line. And so I work with my team on projects. Sometimes we're doing a photo shoot. Sometimes we're doing um, brand outreach or a collaboration with another brand. We have some stuff coming up with Saqqara and Paintbox and some other companies. So that's more strategic and operational. And then, of course, for all of these things, there are little day-to-day logistics. And then uh, finally, I would say kind of the fourth more all-encompassing hat I wear is related to academia and media and sort of all of that other stuff. So I do work as a consultant for some of the uh, 
companies and industry related to my fields to help develop the next generation of products that can make the non-surgical rhinoplasty of the future even better or um, make the suture suspension lifting of next year better than the one this year. And um, and then I, uh, I love to put my ideas into the world. So this week we worked on final iterations of a nose chapter that I'm writing in a plastic surgery textbook. And I worked on a skincare chapter for a different plastic surgery textbook. And, and then I, I do think that the concept of media education is very important. And so I try to make time in my calendar to participate in that conversation and to, you know, not be on the menu, but to be at the table. And so that's something that I try to make time for. So those are kind of my professional responsibilities. And then I would say my kind of all-encompassing identity is not only as a plastic surgeon, but also as the mother to six young children and the wife to my husband and daughter and friend, sister and business colleague. And so it's hard for all of us to balance all of those things. But I think what I really try to do is focus 100% on what I'm doing. And so, so when I'm with the patient in the operating room, I am only with that patient. There's nothing else I'm doing. I'm totally in the zone and 100% there. And, you know, when I'm here with you guys on this podcast, I left my kids running around with, <laughs> with my husband and I am totally here with you and really focused on it. I don't think you can be everything for everybody. And, and I think you really have to focus on being what you want to be for yourself. Thank you, Dr. Devgan, for sharing your morning with us. Um, we're going to conclude now with just a few rapid fire questions. Um, what inspires you? I'm inspired by the people all around me. I've been inspired to be a New Yorker this year and to see the resilience of the city in the face of some really tremendous challenges. And I'm also inspired by just seeing the little ways that people around me, my friends, my family, my patients have tried to get the most out of their days, just to find happiness in little stolen moments. And who would you say some of your role models are? Great question. When I was in medical school, one of my first role models was Julie Freischlag, who was the first female chair of surgery at Johns Hopkins. And she's an amazing vascular surgeon. And I remember thinking at that time, like, wow, I guess a woman can do this. And there's so many people who have inspired me since then, but I really admired how in the face of not always this totally friendly environment, to be honest, she did it. She just got up there and she showed up and she did it. And it made me understand that more was possible. And I think that one important thing to think about for anyone who's listening to this is the extent to which you in whatever stage of life you're in can be a role model for so many other people that young people all around us are looking at us and making subconscious impressions about what life can be just by our existence. Um, I'll tell you a funny brief story. My, my son at one point when he was probably like five years old, was surprised to learn that men could be doctors because the only doctors he knew were me, his pediatrician and his dentist. And we were all women. And he said something silly to me like, oh, I wish I could be a doctor, but I'm a boy. And I was like, wow, this is truly mind blowing, especially obviously given our complex history with gender discrimination in this country. But it just makes you realize that the future is very fluid. And I have a million mentors and people I've looked up to, everybody who I've met, I've learned 
learn something from, but we can all be that for other people too. I think that's a really important point. And lastly, what does success mean to you? I think success means finding happiness and meaning in every day. The weird paradox of adulthood and life is that if you truly achieve success, each day has many similarities with every other day around it. Obviously, I was mentioning to you that there's some variation in my day. I'm in the OR, I'm in a meeting, I'm in the office, et cetera. But generally speaking, in adulthood, once you've really hit your stride, your days are basically the same. And I think success is finding happiness in your daily routine. And are you going to really enjoy your cup of tea that morning? Are you going to find something funny that happened and laugh about it? Or are you going to just miss the opportunity to laugh and enjoy your life? Danny Meyer, the restaurateur, had this amazing quote. And I think he was relaying a story from his grandfather who told him that life is not about avoiding problems. Like the problems are going to happen. Life is about, and success is about solving those problems with people that you like and having fun doing it. And that's like a very approximate quote. It's not an exact quote, but that, that whole idea care of Danny Meyer's grandfather really resonated with me because the lives, the day-to-day lives of a variety of different people are not that different. And the decision to be happy, sad, optimistic, pessimistic, um, or kind of really take life by the horns and enjoy it. You know, those are little things that occur at the margin. And so to me, success is contributing to the world, making this world a better place, trying to create a legacy, trying to raise socially responsible children who are ethical, who are good people, and then also just trying to make good decisions myself, trying to do the right thing for my patients, trying to add value to other people around me, and trying to smile a little bit and enjoy my time on this earth. Thank you all for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare, on Twitter at ThiaHC, and on our website at ThiaHC.org for more content and to join our vibrant community of young professionals, entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders in healthcare. Special thanks to our amazing audio editors, Ellie Park, Asim Jain, Nikita Gupta, and Katie Donahue. If you're enjoying our content, please consider supporting our podcast by donating at anchor.fm slash thea-hc slash support.